רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. Many people were influenced by the great uh, author Malcolm Gladwell books, including myself, The Tipping Point, Blink, David and Goliath, What the Dog Saw, and many others. But recently, I found out that the guy who influenced the most on the work and thinking of Gladwell is my guest today, Richard Nisbet. In fact, in the cover of his last book, Thinking, a Memorial, We have the Malcolm Gladwell quote, "The most influential thinker in my life has been the psychologist Richard Nisbet. He basically gave me my view of the world. Want to know why? Wait for the conversation. Hi, and welcome to my channel, The World of Warriors, which where I host and speak with the most interesting and influential people and scholars from all around the world to discuss science, psychology, philosophy. religion, theology, artificial intelligence, and even more. And if this is your first time in the channel, please consider subscribing, hit the bell button, and give me thumbs up. And my guest today is Professor Richard Nisbet. Professor Richard Nisbet is one of, wow, I, I don't know how to say, is one of the most important and most cited scholars in the field of psychology. He wrote many, book in, many books, including... The person and the situation, the, ge- the geography of thoughts, how Western and Eastern uh, think differently, and intelligence and how to get it, uh, mindware, and most recently thinking a memoir. So Richard, thank you so much for coming. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I, I couldn't be more excited. And let me tell you this. I first came across your name. I, I have a PhD in computer science, so I didn't grow up in, in the field of psychology. But I first came across your name, along with Lee Ross, in the great online course, The Science of Everyday Thinking. And just I got hooked. So I bought your books, and I just read your material. And, and it just blew my mind, I think. You know, the distinction between person, between personality and situation, the... The mere fact that where philosophers, you know, from all around, from, from all of the history, said human beings are, they usually meant Westerns are, and so much more. So first, again, it's a great honor. And let me start with something that strikes me as a young researcher. In the beginning of your last book, you write, and I quote, Those research teams has made it possible to work on extremely wide range of topics, somewhere the distance from the topics of thinking, including the proper way to understand the contribution of personality to, to social behavior, the application of microeconomics principles to decisions we make in everyday life, why the topic, typical job interview is worse and worthless, and so, and so on and so forth. Now, as the young researchers, We more often than not get the advice, stay 
focus. Yes, just stay focused on one thing and be the best you can at one thing. And my question is, because you span across many, many different areas and, and, and papers, is this is just a before tenure, after tenure policy, or even before tenure as a young researchers, it's a good advice, you know, to not just do one thing, but, you know, go do this one and go do that one. Well, certainly I took the route of, of doing two major lines of research uh, my first few years uh, out uh, from the PhD. And it's a good thing because the thing I put my, most of my effort in uh, was uh, a description of the eating behavior of uh, overweight people and why they got fat. Uh, and uh, that my advisor ended up getting all the credit that there was to be gotten from that. Um, and uh, I mean, he set me on the topic and that was great. And then, you know, he talked about it a lot. And so he got the credit. The other stuff I did was really with my left hand, the attribution stuff. Uh, uh, I, I thought of myself as a physiological psychologist when I started at Yale. <clears throat> and uh, which is kind of, anybody who knows me now thinks that's kind of comical because I don't have any of the requisite skills. Yes. Uh, so it's, uh, but I, I did manage to find something that I could do much better. Uh, so I would say, you know, do what interests you. I mean, and uh, if it's good, um, you'll be rewarded for it. And if it's not good, no matter how much you focus, you're not going to get much reward. Because I, I, my main discipline is computer science and artificial intelligence, but some years ago, I was hooked by the notion of intelligence, and I wrote a very a lengthy book called Intelligence, the Unpleasant Truth in Hebrew, and it was completely off my academic, you know, position at, at being a computer scientist, but I said, wow, it's, it's so interesting, and life is too short, so I don't know how they're going to get it, or how they're going to appreciate it. I, I really don't care, you know, because I, I think that I have something to say, and I think that it is very, very important. Now, after reading your book, it is hard not to compare your cooperation with the late Lee Ross and the Traversy Kahneman Corporation that got them the Nobel. And by the way, Kahneman is mentioned, the name Kahneman is mentioned more times in your book than the name Lee Ross, which was a surprise to me. Kahneman, surprise to me. <laughs> yes, Kahneman is mentioned 25 times. Yeah, I know that Traversy, he got a whole chapter. Yeah, but, but Kahneman is mentioned 23 times and Lee Ross is just 18. I said, wow, this is very strange. So we will start with this. Uh, it seems that Lee Ross and Amos had a lot of common. Do you find yourself similar to Danny in any way? Like it's the Lee, it's the Lee Richard. Amos Dani duo? Well, um, there are certainly some similarities. I mean, uh, Amos and Lee were relatively easygoing people. Uh, both Danny and I can be a little bit incandescent from time to time. Um, so there's that temperamentally, probably I'm closer to Kahneman and Lee is closer to Tversky. Um, intellectually, I don't know, it's quite a different situation. I mean, Danny and Amos had very different 
talents. Uh, <clears throat> and Lee and I were completely complementary. I mean, um, we thought the same way about everything. So to the extent that I used to say, save time. I don't have to, I don't have to learn all that much about all kinds of political things because Lee's going to think about it and he's going to have the opinion that I would have if I had been keeping up with it. So I'm going to save my time and just let Lee tell me what political views to have. <laughs> because it's nice. I, 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 I read in your book that Amos almost never uh was never wrong but danny was sometimes wrong. <laughs> wow it, it it's not something that you write uh, in autobiography unless you you want to just put everything on the table so it, it's it was a very personal moment i think you know that that uh the amos lee but you know let's go back to the beginning amos and danny joked that your book uh with lee was human inference made them famous Now, what you say about this, that's funny because, but it's much more nearly the other way around. So can you draw a line between the distinguish, the distinguish your work, you, you and, and, and Lee Ross, then Amos and Danny? We know that, you know, behavioral economics, people are irrational, but you did basically the same thing or you did something completely different or slightly different? Well, it was a... What I was doing was remarkably similar. I mean, uh, I think in the same year, their most famous paper came out uh, in science uh, talking about heuristics, introducing the notion of heuristics and biases and, and opposing them to statistical ways of thinking. Well, I was, I was doing the same thing. I mean, really quite independently, uh, but their, their uh, orientation was broader and deeper than mine, I think. And so um, uh, I just sort of hitched my wagon to their stars. I mean, I just said, well, this is, yep, this is, this is what my enterprise is about too. So I'm going to derive my work from Kahneman first, even though it wasn't initially derived from them at all. It was independently determined. I, I say independently, but not really, because um, Amos was a graduate student at Michigan uh, in the uh, mathematical psychology uh, program there. And um, the, what got me into doing uh, work comparing people's reasoning to statistical uh, requirements and probability requirements was a talk given by somebody in that program, which I heard when I was still at Yale, Uh, where he showed that people are conservative Bayesians. Bayesians. Yes, I know. So, right. So you find out a piece of evidence and it suggests X with a certain probability and you find out another independently known fact, statistically independently known fact, which suggests X with a certain... And as you keep getting these pieces of evidence, it really becomes... From a, from a statistical standpoint, overwhelming that X is the case, but you don't quite keep up with that. I mean, it's, so we're conservative Bayesians. <laughs> and the, the, the joke goes, it's not a joke really, it's, a, it's an amusing fact. That Amos, Amos told it to Danny. Right, Amos told it to Danny and Danny said, baloney, uh, <laughs> people aren't any kind of statistician. And by the way, that's one of the main things that he was wrong about <laughs> and remains wrong about. People are 
quite good intuitive statisticians in domains with which they're familiar because you're forced into it. I mean, you can find people who follow sports will be, uh, they'll pay attention to base rates. They understand the concept of regression and so on. Uh, people who don't follow sports uh, don't see that. Uh, they don't understand sports events that way. But if you had, if you went to, um, if you've done drama in your life, you've done acting, you understand regression <laughs> and base rate and a lot of the large numbers in the context of theater. Um, so, and more generally than that, we have a quite good understanding of the law of large numbers. I mean, it's, it's really just right in the sense that we realize not only that more evidence is better than less evidence, but we know that uh, this is especially true if the thing we're thinking about is highly inherently variable. So if- Can you, you give know, me an example? Because I, okay. think, I think that, you know, people have very hard time grasping the world, the, the law of large numbers and overlapping distributions. Uh, in the context of intelligence, because I, in the last four years, you know, lecture about intelligence, overlapping distribution, the law of large numbers. It's very hard to people to, ext to extract themselves from the now and their, uh, uh, their first experiences and say, listen, different people see the world differently. It's very hard for them to, to get this, this idea in the context of intelligence. So could you give me like an example? Okay, so we, we did a study. I did this with David Krantz um, and with Ziva Kundu, by the way, who was an Israeli social psychologist who really was fully Danny's equal in brilliance. Unfortunately, she died uh, early in her career. Um, but we uh, told people uh, that uh, there's an island where uh, there are uh, some uh, a tribe of people, whatever, I don't know what name we gave it. And I'm going to tell you some things about this and ask you some questions. So we said, you've, you've encountered, um, there's a new element on this island uh, and uh, it, it burns with a blue flame. Uh, a sample of it. You've seen a sample of it. It burns with a blue flame. Uh, what percentage of samples do you think would, grow, would glow with a blue flame? And people say, well, 100%. I mean, the one case is, a, is sufficient, as Hume would have said, for a full induction. Uh, we say um, there is a type of bird uh, on the island. You've just seen uh, uh, one. Um, uh, and it's blue. Um, what color do you think uh, all shrebles would be? We say, well, probably blue, but not necessarily. I'd, I'd want to know more, and so on. Or if you say one of, you encounter two or three of the, these tribe members, and uh, each of them is obese. Do you think they're all obese? No, 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 I want to see more. So <clears throat> they condition their use of the law of large numbers on the variability they expect for the kind of dimension they're estimating. Well, that is, that is exactly the right way to think about the law of large numbers. 
The problem is we don't spontaneously, as you're indicating, we don't spontaneously think about, about the law of large numbers in domains uh, where, um, where we're not all that familiar uh, with, with the evidence and how to think about it. Now, let me ask you something because I think it strikes me again. Uh, in one of Danny's book, he said, he, he told a story that, I, that early in his career, he was introduced to, to some physicist and he told him about his research. And the physicist just left the conversation and said, I'm not interested in the psychology of stupidity. This is what the physicist said to Danny. I'm not interested in the psychology of stupidity. And ever since Danny Kahneman and you know the Dan, Dan Ariely books, we know that people are irrational, people are irrational. And we have like tons of zillions of many great cool examples that people are irrational. But maybe it is the other way around. Maybe uh, Adam Smith was, was right and people do rational decisions, but what, what Amos and Danny and you and Lee Ross and Dan really found are the exceptions. Like you said, people are very good with the law of large number in the context that in the context that they are familiar with, and people are much more rational than irrational. And your entire work, the 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 entire Nobel Prize was just about the small exceptions. Would you agree? Well, I don't know. I'd be I'd be hard to to attach a percentage of because the domain of all inferences is so enormous uh, and varied. But I've actually come to view all of that work I did during the Tversky and Kahneman part of my life in the following way. They always said, by the way, the heuristics that they looked at, the, the representativeness heuristic, the availability heuristic, and so on, uh, were perfectly good inferential tools for all kinds of things in the world. But, and then they're gonna show you the exceptions. Um, but uh, the way I would put that is that where we end up looking stupid is because information is coming to us in a form that we never came to us in evolutionary history. I mean, we're getting you know numbers and prob probabilities are being given to us. Um, uh, we take samples of things. I mean, it, we're being, the, so the problem is we live, the successor to the industrial age is the information age and the information comes, us, comes to us in a very odd form from an evolutionary standpoint. And that's where we stub our toe. I mean, that um, uh, if we, don't, we don't really know fully how to, how to deal with information. And by the way, higher education, it turns out, gives a huge improvement in people's ability to not be stupid, uh, which surprised me. I, I had no idea uh, that, that, that that would be the case, but it is the case. It's, it's remarkable improvement. Uh, and um, and in, you, in, in uh, the laboratory, you can teach people uh, statistical principles in such a way that they can apply it immediately to a huge range of events, um, but we could do a much better job. I mean, um, you teach the law of large numbers and then you never, in a statistics class, and then you never say, oh, by the way, <laughs> this 
has enormous relevance to your life in almost every way. And so does base rate and so does regression and so on. Give them a few everyday life examples. It, I, I think it would be hugely powerful and would make the human race much smarter, you know, the minute you start doing that. By the way, Judea Pearl is going to be here next month. And he, uh, like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, wrote an article, why I'm just half busy on. And I think he basically say the same thing that you are saying is that, you know, we, we tend to be busy and we think that we are busy and, and more evidence will give us much better uh, ideas or hypotheses. But, you know, it, it is very hard because we think in why and, the, and base law doesn't think in why. So it's going to be a very nice, uh, very nice thing to endeavor. Like now, I, I want to give two quotes from your book, one uh, uh, related to Lee and one related to Amos, and then we can move on. Now, Lee admitted to me that what you said, that his ambition in life had been to have an intellectual impact on the world without actually having to work much. In this, he succeeded, but it might not have happened without the taskmaster like me to take him walk on books and his extremely talented collaborated Marx Luper to keep his research program running. And this is like the Lee Ross quote, and I'm going to move to a different quote, but I think it's very similar I waste a lot of time, Amos once told me. He didn't seem to regret it. In fact, he thought it was good policy. Michael Lewis quotes Amos as saying, the secret to doing good research is always to be a little unemployed. Now, ever since I read these two, two quotes, I keep thinking and pondering about. A, do you think that these two quotes come from the same source? Lee Ross was just didn't want to work too hard because he wants good ideas, or he was just plain lazy. And he was, B, just, plain, he was uh, just plain lazy. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know about Amos. I don't know if I would say that Amos was lazy. I mean, but Lee was. I mean, Lee was <laughs> astonishingly lazy. Okay. <clears throat> I used to joke that I, I beat two books out of Lee Ross. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing, because uh, you wrote in your books that Amos told you, first say no, but if, if you can't say no, so do what you need to do. But if you can please elaborate, because I think that, you know, many creative thinking and many creative and, and the process of being creative and being productive with ideas is something that I always thinking about. And what, and what Amos told you and what I think, could you please elaborate of it is really a secret to doing a good research is always to be a little unemployed. Would you say well, it's a good advice? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yes, I would, definitely. You know, I would never quite put it that way for myself. I mean, <laughs> if you're ethnically Methodist, as I am, you really sort of always have to be working. I mean, that's what, you know, uh, Methodists are thrifty and they work hard. But the great thing about being a social psychologist is that it's never clear when you're not working. <laughs> so uh, I can I do lots of things that are fun. I say, well, you know, uh, and, and uh, I can always justify it on a work standpoint. Although that isn't why really isn't really why I did it. But uh, so it amounts to the same thing: laziness, uh, Methodism. 
And I don't know where I don't know where Amos got the idea of being uh, underemployed. I, you would never think of Amos as lazy. I mean, but it's maybe. very hard to be unemployed as a young faculty member, you know, because you and the stress now, the stress these days, I think it's much different than the, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, would you agree that, you know, young faculty members that you see right now have much more pressure on them, you know, to publish it. It was always published or perish, but now I think, you know, it's much, much harder. Would you agree? Absolutely. So how um, can you be, how can you be in this time a little unemployed? Yeah, I think, I think, well, If you're a social psychologist, you have my gimmick of saying that you're always working no matter what. Um, but um, it, it's, uh, you know, when I was, my first few years in the business, I used to walk around the department with a coffee cup looking for somebody to talk to just for fun. I'm, if you did that today, you'd get fired. I mean, <laughs> so I'm with a coffee cup wandering aimlessly in the hall. So it, and then I, I point out in the book that was sort of overnight, the situation changed. I mean, it, it was, it was not, it didn't feel gradual. It felt like, and Bob Zions, great social psychologist. And by the way, I'll tell you something interesting about Bob Zions, who was considered one of the greatest social psychologists ever. He's Polish, raised Catholic. His wife, he's now dead. His wife just found out That he was Jewish. Um, and he didn't know it. Probably his parents had raised him Catholic to, for protection. After the public. Holocaust method, like. Right. Well, this was before, he was born before the Holocaust. So they, it's as if they, uh, they had an intuition, you know. That, okay. So at any rate. Uh, how, how did you tell him? Uh, oh, uh, Her Mazel Tov, you're Jewish. Right, exactly. Uh, well, he never, he never found out. I mean, so uh, presumably, because his wife didn't know, his children didn't know, and, and I, almost surely he didn't know. In fact, he used to jokingly say to his Jewish friends, just think how smart I could be if I were Jewish. Uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, this is a long way around. Bob Zions uh, and I were talking about I mean, this is crazy. Every, I, I, be, I'm, I was a full professor. I'm behaving like an assistant professor. When I was an assistant professor, I behaved like a full professor. And he said, it's the women who came into the business almost overnight. Uh, and they didn't know how hard you're supposed to have, how, how hard are you supposed to work? I mean, I'm just going to knock myself out and do, you know. But if everybody else is taking the stairs two at a time, you, know, you start doing it yourself. Now, I don't know whether this is true or not. I don't know whether it's fair to blame it on the women or not, but it's, it certainly, um, it did coincide with the era in which women were coming into psychology. I read this anecdote in your book. I went back, you know, to go to some reference because, you know, it, it's, it's a big thing, what he just said, found none. And I said, okay, I'm not going to mention this because it, it, it's too much for me, but it's a very, it's, I think it's a very interesting idea. It's a very interesting idea that, you know, that the women suddenly showed up and changed, you know, the, uh, the balance. Right. The balance. And, you know, <clears throat> and I think that 
this is how it go with uh, social psychology is that, is that you don't know exactly which a caused which b so and from that we are going from thinking we are going uh, to intelligence and how to get it great book and i must tell you a story some years ago i started writing a book about artificial intelligence and since artificial intelligence aim to duplicate human intelligence i th i thought you know maybe i just write a chapter about human intelligence and i knew nothing about human intelligence just nothing and you you know that the gardner theory and that there is an iq thing and no one knows what is iq at least no not in Israel. We know what our SAT is, but not the IQ. Most people in Israel don't know what the IQ, IQ is. And then I started reading. And I start reading Richard Heyer and Erla Hunt and Charles Mary and, and Macintosh and, and Jensen and, and, and Gardner. And as, as more as I uh, read, I became more convinced that it was just the other way around. And then I came across your book and James Flynn book. So I, I read those two, you know, to get a, 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 counter, a counter perspective. And I, I, I have some questions that I want to ask you about intelligence, but I want to start with something from your last book. You said, and I quote again, Amos was not just in, intensely smart about ideas, it was common sense smart, street smart. And you said <clears throat> common sense. Now, in your interview with Michael Shermer, you said that Hillary campaign lacked a common sense because she offended many people. And I would like to, to ask you, like- Wait, who lacked common sense? Uh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that she lacked common sense. It's just that there was- In this the campaign, the campaign. And, the campaign yeah. lacked well, common sense. Well, certainly, the campaigns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the campaign lacked common sense, but she was uh, but she was responsible for the campaign. So, oh, but but <laughs> let me ask you this: What's the relation between the two? Okay, what's the relation between in be, between the things that made Amos smart? You know, the the IQ test, the shortest IQ test, is to figure out how smarter Amos Versi is more than you. Okay, this kind of brilliant that we associate usually with IQ or with like the conventional way of intelligence and the common sense mode, the street smart. okay? What's the relation between the two? Because there is a great quote for Thomas Soil that some ideas are so stupid that only academics can believe in them. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, uh, uh, Thaler, Richard Thaler, who is a, a, a crony, uh, of uh, Kahneman and Tversky, uh, and who, by the way, <clears throat> uh, got a, an education as a social psychologist, and that's where many of his ideas came from. And for and Amos and Danny, I mean, as well, we're all we think of them as cognitive psychologists, and Thaler as an economist. But really, uh, I mean, <laughs> Lee uh, used to say about behavioral economics that it was social psychology with a name change for business reasons. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, 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 and just a second, moreover, Danny told me, and I, I think he told it, he told it he, he, in an interview that they specifically chose an economic journal 
to publish their first paper because they knew that no psychology journal will ever publish their, their paper. Which this paper is, is that? I think it's about prospect theory, but I'm not sure. You know, yeah. they, they said, okay, we will get, because I'm, I'm not going to shake the world of psychology. So let's say, listen, this is a great implication in economics. Okay, so, yeah. what's the, so what's the relation between common sense smart and intelligence? Well, first of all, let, let me show how different they can be. I mean, Hillary Clinton is a great example of how they can be different. But you know, when you teach at a, a, a good institution like Michigan, you're constantly encountering people with you know, very high IQs and very, I mean, brilliant in a seminar setting, but who, who can't do the business. I mean, it, it's just, they, they, they're not, they can't be a scientist because you say, here, go out and test this idea. And they come back with nothing. I mean, it's just, um, so uh, you, you learn, you learn quickly. If you're, if you're, certainly a psychologist. I don't know if it's that way in the other sciences as well, that there can be such a, a gap between, you know, obvious intelligence of an IQ sort and ability to get things done. Um, and I'm actually thinking about writing another book about intelligence now, which uh, par part of the goal will be to shrink IQ to its proper place in our understanding of intelligence, uh, because it's so far from the whole deal. The, the, the great physio physiological, physiologist, um, uh, I'm blanking on his name, um, uh, from, from the 1920s. Um, Luria. Said, what? Luria, maybe? No, no it's, he's a, a, a biologist, a physiologist. Um, I'll think of it probably before we're done today, but uh, he's, he said, you know, the, the, the ability to do science is a multiplicative affair. It's sort of raw brilliance times, willingness to work hard, Lee Ross to the contrary, notwithstanding. Uh, there are uh, exceptions, there are exceptions. Right. Uh, and um, ability to get along with people, uh, curiosity. I mean, your effect, and I think this is true, your effectiveness in life uh, is, is a multiplicative uh, function. And he said, if any of those things is close to zero, the whole thing comes to zero. And I, for example, I have a, a friend who's now deceased who had the highest tested IQ I ever heard of. 184. I didn't know the numbers went that high. And if you knew him, you, you said, okay, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I mean, it was an amazing mind, but he got his PhD in political science in the 1950s at a time when the greatest university in the world was considered by many people to be the University of Chicago. So with all those brains and with all that, that education and, with, and the prestige behind it, he only managed to have three jobs at institutions that no academic in the US ever, ever even heard of. I mean, and he, he, was, he had 
very little ability to get along with people. He wasn't a bad man. He was a, a, a good man, uh, but he was just sort of impossible. There's a British tame, term for this. He was not clubbable. <laughs> yeah, so again, I learned a new word again. Could you please repeat this word? Clubbable. Clubbable. Uh, Well, I mean, you, you couldn't invite him into your club. He wouldn't be amusing. Ah, clubable. Be ah, very, oh, very nice. Very nice. He, he wasn't clubable. Okay. So can we start with the hard questions? And again, with all due, with all due respect, and you obviously seen that I truly respect your work, okay? But can we start with the hard questions? Sure. Okay. Would you... Now, first, after reading, and I specifically exclude Charles Mary, okay? But... Richard Heyer, Russell Warren, Errol Hunt, McIntosh, and, and even other, Jensen, and other guys as well, okay? Would you consider your opinions and your views to be the non-orthodoxy view of intelligence right now? Because if I read The Neuroscience of Intelligence by Richard Heyer, uh, pub, pub, published in 2017, And if I read Errol Hunt, Human Intelligence, I will read something very different from your book, okay? So would you agree that what you said, what you say is the unorthodoxy of intelligence? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. So we start with this, okay. And uh, another thing, would you agree that intelligence is a unitary phenomenon? In other words, It encapsulates just one thing. It's not like in the big five that you have five different orthogonal view of personality. If you're smart in one thing, let's say abstract reasoning, you will be better in other things like calculation, memory, general knowledge, etc. Would you say that intelligence is a unitary thing? No, not, not at all. I mean, I mean IQ <clears throat> IQ tests. Um, are very different from all kinds of tasks that require intelligence in life. First of all, the, they're ripped out of context. The whole point in IQ, IQ tests was, were founded on a wrong idea of intelligence, that you could, uh, that, that intelligence could be stripped from context. Uh, and IQ tests were going to be such as a thermometer, you dip into people's brains. And they very deliberately did not include, from the outset, they did not include questions for which the answer came from formal education because of the conviction that intelligence is independent of education, which is absolutely, the, <laughs> the longer I live, the more idiotic that seems to me. It's... Uh, Uh, intelligence is, uh, in, in our daily lives is totally embedded in context. And uh, the amount of intelligence that we have is very much dependent on early life experiences, which by the way, I mean, the, the people you're talking about so it will tell you, probably still today, I haven't kept up with the literature. I don't need to. <laughs> I, I'm, I just make sure that nobody has ever said any, has ever contradicted the material in that intelligence book, except you'll find that Murray does. And then Murray uh, contradicts it on the grounds of race still. He seems ineducable on that point. Um, 
but uh, uh, it, it turns out we have, we have now very good evidence. You place a, an adopted kid in an upper middle class home, or you, you know, randomly, as it were, put him in a lower class home, that's worth 12 to 18 points on IQ. Okay, so even IQ, you know, is massively dependent on early life. Totally, totally in conflict with 70 years of... of But of, just a second, I think that even Eric Torkheimer, I think the most, uh, the most important findings of Eric Torkheimer, who is like lean to the environmentalist uh, school of intelligence, said, listen, when you go to the lower class, environment plays a big role. And when you go to the middle and upper class environment or even shared environment, as we say, play a small role. But I, I would, with your permission, I would like to go back a little bit and say, could you give me an example of a, of a cognitive task or cognitive test or cognitive uh, task that doesn't correlate with what we know as intelligence? Okay. In other words, would you consider Gardner model of multiple intelligence, the, the eight independent intelligence to be correct? Because even Gardner himself in 2016 said, listen, we need to think of a different model. Um, well, I, I, do, I do certainly think that, uh, I mean, it's, it's an empirical fact. I mean, you measure IQ, you got a number there and you give, uh, someone a task, any kind of task, which requires something that you would say is intelligence, IQ will correlate with that. Um, so this is the, a unitary thing. This is a unitary thing. If you're good in this, you will be good in this. If you're above average, you will be above average, not? No, no. Uh, and actually here's a fascinating fact, which didn't find its way into my intelligence book. The higher your IQ, the more jagged your ability profile. I'm a good example of that. I mean, I can't open a can. I mean, you know, I just, I'm mechanically uh, pathetic. Uh, I, I'm terrible at language. And uh, one of the punishments of my life is to live with a woman wonderful in every respect, except one, which is that she sets the other end of the continuum from me on linguistic ability. I mean, for me to learn a language is to brute force memorization, hard Methodist kind of work. She Have you ever learned another language? What's that? Have you ever learned another language? Well, I got, let's put it this way. I got to the point where I could read simple novels in German and in French. Oh. I couldn't do either of those today. I mean, <laughs> but it was a huge amount of effort to do that. <clears throat> My wife took... 20 hours of Chinese, we went to China and she was talking to people in Chinese. <laughs> That's the difference. So I mean, again, jagged ability. And there are things in which my wife is, you know, intelligent, but not brilliant for sure. And here she absolutely sets the scale on linguistics. Okay, so two more questions because it's so interesting speaking with you and we have a lot to cover, but you know, intelligence is just one thing. What if in three or five years from now, I can just, you know, by measuring the, uh, the width of your outer cortex to give you a good measure of your IQ, 
would you say, hey, this is not an artificial phenomena. It is something that is structured within the physiology of the brain. Let's say that I can do an fMRI scan and with that fMRI scan deduce with good certainty what your intelligence is. Would you, would this change what you think about intelligence? No, I mean, it's, it, it's swimming upstream of a thousand facts that we know about, like the one I just gave you. I mean, the thickness of the cortex, it's just, it's as thick as it is. And you have one, a, a very successful psychologist, if I do say so myself, who is mechanically, pathetically bad and, uh, and linguistically, you know, not retarded, but certainly not exceptional at all, to say the least, uh, and many other kinds of things. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly being impressed with <laughs> the number of occupations which I could not possibly handle. I mean, it's just completely outside my skill limit. Uh, and it's, uh, so, you know, one number of the thickness of your cortex is, is not going to capture that kind of diversity. And, and let's say, and let's say that I can screen your DNA and form your DNA from DNA of an embryo. And this is what uh, some of the rituals, some of the research that is doing, uh, that is currently done right now in China, that they want to take, you know, the very smart people and say, okay, DNA is a multivariable thing or intelligence is a multivariable thing, can we say, okay, from this stream of DNA, I can guess with certainty what your intelligence is. So with, with, with this uh, achievement, change something about your views? Or no, again, no, 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 no. I mean, because intelligence, I mean, because <laughs> this fact I keep trying to impress on you that uh, the ability profile gets more and more jagged as you get as you get smarter and smarter. Uh, let me give you an example here. I often ask audiences, uh, who do you think has the higher IQ, Barack Obama or George W. Bush? I've never found a single person, conservative or liberal, who thinks that George Bush, is smarter than Barack Obama. We have good reason to believe they have about the same IQ. What's going on with George Bush? His own aides describe him as completely incurious. The man was out of the US twice in his life. His father was ambassador to China, so he didn't presumably even make it to China uh, very often. So incurious, intellectually lazy, uh, and uh, uh, people are responding to it. Well, but I, in terms of IQ, you know, it's perfectly high IQ. It's just a, an intellect that's, uh, that's quite inferior uh, to, to a Barack Obama. I mean, Barack Obama is amazing to me. The, the, the range of things that he could do extraordinarily well. I mean, so, He's our he's our our example of a highly intelligent person, but but he doesn't have a higher IQ than George Bush, in all probability. And by the way, SAT score is quite a good measure of IQ. Uh, it's not the same. <clears throat> and uh, here's another 
kind of fact that fits my view of intelligence. Um, it's what the A stands for. It usually stands for aptitude, but now it says it stands for assessment from the SAT. It's a standard, oh, what the A stands for. Yeah, who knows? And then now it's just SAT. Don't ask me <laughs> what the A means. Yeah, but <laughs> if you know, it used to be aptitude, but 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 after then, after we write the change it to assessment. I'm not going to measure the aptitude. I'm just going to measure, you know, assessment something. Now, the last question that I have regarding uh, intelligence is something that I wrote in my book regarding the sub-Saharan African have an average IQ of 70, as Richard Lynn and other uh, measured it. Okay, and you said, and I quote. It just can't be done. It, 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 if you know, because IQ of 70 basically means the border of retardment in the US. Yeah? IQ of 70 will get you out of the electrical chair in the US. And you said, this is just can't be done. Just can't be. It, it, if they had an average IQ of 70, which means that half of the population is lower than 70, they wouldn't know when to blow, how to do anything that relates to, you know, stay alive. And this is your quote, okay? And the questions that I would like to raise, and I will do it with all uh, very cautiously, okay? Basically what you said that if their IQ cannot be 70, let's say that it is higher. We know it's not 100 because 100 is, it's not 100, but let's say that it is like 80 or 85. And if Sub-Saharan Africans has an average IQ of 80 to 85, and this is the measured average IQ for the black uh, population in the US, <clears throat> it basically destroy your argument because you go for the in environment thing, but you can't think of two more different environments in Sub-Saharan Africa and Manhattan. So if both populations in two very different environments will have an average of 80, 85, basically environment has nothing to do with this. No? This is like no. the, 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 no, I, the I hardest question that they have. I can't tell you how wrong that is. I, I just, and let me tell you the fact that, which will change your mind. I think I know where your mind is, and this will this will now throw a sand in the gears of a belief. In 1970, a British psychologist named Isaac wrote a book, uh, which was all about how science has proved that blacks uh, are less intelligent than white for largely genetic reasons. And he said, and oh, by the way. Uh, you'll be interested to know this, my fellow Englishman. <clears throat> the Irish IQ is 15 points lower than the English IQ. And that too is genetic. And I'm an Israeli. How... Hmm? I'm an Israeli. Yes. Ah, no, my fellow Englishman, because I, 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 I'm an Israeli. So the Jewish IQ is, uh, is better. But <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, it is for sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but the. The, the Irish IQ is 15 points below the English. Same thing, same as, as in America. Black IQ at that time was 15 points lower uh, than white IQ. Uh, and at the, at the time I sank wrote this book, Irish IQ was 15 points lower uh, than, uh, than English IQ. And the reason for that, he says, is that the smart ones left in the, in the 19th century to go because they didn't want to starve, leaving only the stupid people in Ireland. Well, that's, that story worked at that point. 
Uh, it's actually ludicrous, but you, you, he could get away with that in a scientific uh, enterprise. Today, the cognitive skills of the Irish exceed the cognitive skills of the English. And the per capita GDP of Ireland is higher than that of England. Okay, so it, it's, it's this enough is very, to, very interesting. I've never heard uh, th th those numbers. And again, I've read a lot about IQ. So I, I, I'm not familiar with what you just said. It's extremely interesting. Uh, but you are not saying it's about the black community in the US. Would you say that the average average IQ figure for Blacks in the US right now in 2022 is 100 or lower? Oh, it's lower. I mean, it's uh, the last time we had a good number for what it was, it was 9.5 uh, points. Uh, and, the and would you say that the, that the average IQ for Asian is higher than white? And this in part explain the disproportional ratio for Asian in the Silicon Valley. Say the last again. That the, 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 the average IQ for Asian is approximately five points higher than white. And this in part explain uh, the disproportional ratio of Asian in the Silicon Valley. Uh, the evidence on IQ for Asians versus whites is in the US. It, it's simply not there. It's not there. I mean, <clears throat> uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, and this is, again, <laughs> I, this will change your mind about intelligence. Um, in the 1960s, there was uh, an IQ test and SATs given to tens of thousands of high school seniors. Asian IQ was trivially lower than white IQ. SAT scores of, of uh, Asians were a standard deviation higher, which is enormous. Wow. Now, a major difference between IQ tests, which were designed to be independent of anything you learned, they're not successful or not remotely successful, that, but they were designed to do that. And SAT scores, which in the sense of almost the opposite, they were designed to show how much you know. I mean, what's your chemistry score, what's your, et cetera. So now I'm, you probably are familiar <laughs> with the concept of tiger mother, uh, that the Asian mother is gonna, I mean, or, or the, the joke in the US, what, that, uh, we have the uh, Jewish mother. Yes, right. And I, there's a, a joke that uh, if you ask uh, Jewish mothers what they think about tiger mothers, eh, they're amateurs. By the way, <laughs> I think this is basically what James Flynn said in, in one of his last interviews. He said, listen, what we know, I want to go all the way for culture, okay? All the way for environment, but we know that the environment, you know, the, the culture of Jewish women, Jewish mothers in the U.S. is extremely different, okay? Let's say that you go to the basketball team of your school or of your university. A black mother will be extremely happy. A Jewish mother will be extremely disappointed, extremely sad. And James Flynn said, I don't know how to change it. I don't know how to change it. But this, in part, 
what distinguished the, the high, the, the one standard deviation above average of Jewish Americans and Blacks Americans. The culture is different. I believe that the genetics is purely the same, but we have two extremely different cultures. And this is yes. an inherent problem that is unsolvable right now. And again, James Flynn said, this is a major problem. Again, the genetics is, is just the same. What can we do about the aspirations, you know, about the culture of learning versus another culture? Would you say that this is a hard question? Uh, yeah, uh, that, that sounds like Jim, all right? And I, I would agree with that. I mean, culture changes in geological time, practically. I mean, uh, I don't know if you know, you know that I've showed that the US South is still a culture of honor. They're still prepared to shoot anybody who, get, who gets- who We insults. have it in Israel, we have it in Israel. No, no, you don't have a culture. You have the exact opposite of a culture. No, 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 not, not the Jewish community. The Arab Muslim community in Israel yes, right, have right. exactly culture of honor, exactly. And they will so, kill their daughter if she disobey the chastity rules. Exactly right. the culture of honor we have in Israel, not the for whole, the Jewish community. The whole Mediterranean basin is a culture of honor. Uh, and, uh, you know, Think of South Italians, Sardinians, Corsicans. I mean, they'll they'll meet the Arabs one on one when it comes uh, to uh, culture of honor. Now, how 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 it is that the Jews escape that? I don't know, but the Jews could could not be more different from the culture of honor. I mean, uh, Jews are generally considered uh, in the in the world today to be quite rude, uh, and in the U.S. they were considered rude 40 years ago. No one would say that today, by the way. Rude? You say rude like chutzpah? No, rude, uh, insulting, you know, unpleasant. Uh, oh, yeah, you're an right. idiot. I mean, that's an insult that, that you know. That, and, we say, and we say that the American Jews are much more gentle than what we are in Israel. Absolutely. Yes. It's a totally different culture. I mean, uh, it's a totally different culture from what it was 40 years ago. I mean, By the way, Richard, according to my perspective or to my culture, I'm very polite to you right now. So if you if you experience any rudeness, please forgive me in advance because in my culture, I'm extremely polite. Okay. Right. No. <laughs> Listen, I hang out. I hang out with enough Jews older than you that I, <laughs> I, I, I even even my 20 year old self would not have found you rude in this interview animated that's all so uh yeah so it's uh oh but again i'm going to get back to the the, the tens of thousands problems. of kids uh the iq is essentially the same of these kids the sat scores are quite significantly higher and there's a a parallel finding to that somebody did a study uh of uh, uh first grade through fifth grade kids in three cities, uh, Taipei, um, uh, Beijing, and Minneapolis. And um, the American kids at the beginning of first grade had slightly higher IQs than these Asian kids. Now, these were samples of convenience, so we, we don't know what to make of that. Uh, 
but um, but I believe it's probably true uh, because uh, Western culture focuses a lot on trying to make kids smarter. I was once on an airplane with a guy who's got his four-year-old kid there and he's got a picture book with him. And he says, you know, uh, Jimmy, uh, pajamas, are pajamas long or short? And Jimmy says, short. I said, no, Jimmy, pajamas are long. This is, this, this is not a bizarre thing for a Westerner to do that. It would be bizarre for an Easterner. That's not what they do. Their, their socialization is all about emotion and a proper, proper behavior and obedience and so, so on. Just a second, because I want to move from what you said to, again, to, to the geography of thought, which, again, let's move the, let's take the intelligence part away and just focus on what you said, the culture of honor. So first you say the geography of thought, Westerns and Easterns are different and uh, you, you, tell a wonderful story that one of your uh, graduate students, he was a Chinese, and he said to you, listen, when you said people are, or human beings are, we don't think like this. And this strike, you know, like a, a new theory of what, how restaurants and Easterns are different. Now, first, let me start. Uh, what about the Mediterranean? How should I consider myself as an Israeli? I mean, the Mediterranean, I, am I Western? Or am I Eastern? Because the Arab community, for example, is is much more collective than in individuals, hence Easterns, but it's not tolerant at all. Therefore, it is Western. So, so where do you put the Middle East? Where do you put the Arabs? Oh, Arabs are a, a culture of honor. They're they're intellectually closer to uh, the Chinese than to uh, the English um, in terms of the, the intellectual orientation, the, the, the cognitive orientation. And when I wrote that book, I, I, I was able to show with my brilliance, an amazing flotilla of brilliant Chinese, Korean, and Japanese students. That, that, they're, they're what's behind that book. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have an idea in my head. They said, oh, I bet, you know, I bet, you know, Japanese see more in an underwater The famous sea. Chinese poet 20, 200 years ago said exactly the same thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, right. So, uh, I just thought of them as different orientations, analytic in, uh, in the uh, West, um, holistic in the East, uh, logical in the West, uh, dialectical in the East. And so these are profound differences. I've begun to realize these are, they, these are forms of intelligence. I mean, everybody knows that analytic, being, having an analytic mind, being able to think logically, being able to categorize sensibly, these are all Western virtues, which East Asians have to a lesser extent. Not a huge difference, I mean, but, but you, but uh, at any rate, but I've now come to think of them as, uh, as intelligence, as forms of intelligence. And the, the holistic, I mean, look, Asians walk into a situation, East Asians, and they see more of what's going on. 
they know physically more of you know what what you're wearing, what I'm wearing. They they know uh, they know they and uh, uh, they characterize relations. They they know where the dominance relations are, and they they just have a much better understanding of the situation. They live in context. They have to respond to context, so they're very skilled at dealing with it. Uh, and um, let me just uh, give let let me just give my viewers an example that you give in the book. Let's say that I have a picture of a tiger in the woods, and I ask a restaurant, "What do you see?" And since we are uh, programmed to objective subjective kind of thinking, what's the object? What the what's the main idea in in this picture? Many Western we say it's it's a tiger. And they will omit the surroundings. But if you show the very same pictures to Istrians, they won't say just a tiger, they say tiger in the wood. They will also incorporate the other thing, the background, which is not less important. Would you agree? Well, uh, to some extent. Leave, leave the importance out of it. I mean, yes. they're paying much more attention to the background and they their eye movements are, you, you track them, they're looking back and forth between the tiger and the context, which is very uncharacteristic of Western subjects. They don't tend to do that. So, I mean, literally, literally they are seeing a different world. There's, and <clears throat> they're, they're picking up much more information than we do. And by we, I, you know, it's- Restaurants. For, actually, I think Israelis, you ask him, so where are they intellectually? Where okay. am I, Richard? Where am I? Where am I? Yeah, well, uh, you're, you're not going to be surprised at my response is both. Uh, I'm also a religious Orthodox. So I have on, you know, on my back, you know, the heavy weight of tradition, which, you know, stems for East and West. And by the way, in, uh, in West, we, you know, the most... Aristotle said, you know, the eye is a window to the soul and vision is like, is like the best, the, the highest in the hierarchy of senses. But in Judaism, sometimes hearing is even better because you hear what the prophet says. And when you hear something, you hear even what the prophet didn't say. You hear the subconscious. So like the logic of the Jews is not about seeing, it's about hearing. And this is a whole new philosophy, but never mind. Now, I that's actually extremely interesting to me. I mean, I, I can give I you a lot of more about this because I think it's it, it, I teach Maimonides, the guy for 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 the perplexed, and uh, there was a very big theory about hearing versus seeing because when I see something, when when I use my eyes and something obscure or, or abstract, so I can't see what is hidden under or behind the obstruction. But when I hear, it's something different. Now, I can know a cat, I can distinguish a cat from a dog just by seeing, but I cannot distinguish a cat from, a, from, from another cat just by hearing. So in, in some ways, hearing is much inferior to seeing, but in other ways, hearing is much, much more profound in the context. And this is why we need to listen to what God speaks to us. It's listen, it's not hear. But again, uh, last year I had Joe Heinrich on, on the show. And he- I actually he saw that. Yes. I saw it. 
the uh, the conversation your interview yes wow thank you how was it yeah. very good interview thank very you good. and 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 what i ask you i'm going to ask what i ask him i'm going to ask you let's say that you need to to uh, to give the government a policy paper what to do okay how can i make a society less tribal how can i make a society you know with less honor honor of code or culture of honor okay how can i make a society like the like the eastern like the chinese more susceptible or or or, or uh, with like more less obedience to authority which is in the west you know the science is less obedience to authority so what can i take from your book and summarize and squeeze into a policy paper can i do something like this can you do what how can i summarize your book i want to diminish the culture of honor in the south i want to give eastrians more uh, you know less obedience i want to give restaurants more ways to look at the context okay can i use your book as a policy to do what a b c and d and get westerns to be more eastrians get eastrians to be more westerns and get arabs to just eliminate the culture of honor yeah <clears throat> well i don't know except to say that profound cultural differences occur. There's a, uh, um, an 18th century guide to the wealthy uh, young Englishman going abroad to say what these people are like. He said, well, the Englishman will, uh, will be sure to be delighted with uh, the people who live in the German principalities. They're very kind and gentle and sweet people, they're, they're absolutely lovely. If, if one were to find anything wrong with them, you might say, well, they probably wouldn't make good soldiers. But even then, if they were commanded by Italian generals, they might be able to be good, good soldiers. Now, that absolutely inverts our concept of Italy and Germany. I mean, uh, the Irish go from being uh, much less intelligent than the English uh to being slightly more intelligent than the english by the, the measures we have of these things of course the the culture of honor i mean uh, southern americans are not remotely uh as uh, steeped in the culture of honor than traditional arabs uh are uh, but you know that uh a hundred years ago 150 years ago Uh, they would, I'm sure, they would have met the Arabs on their own ground and equally. So there's been huge change in the Which U.S. Which what you just said is just wait. Of course, culture is changing everything, but they didn't ask for, you know, of course, if we wait long enough, things will be different. But I'm asking you a different question. Is there anything that the government can do right now? I will give you an example. Many Chinese come to Israel and say, listen, we want to learn from the startup nation. We want to be part of the startup nation. You Israeli have like zillion startups. Each Israeli has two startups, yes? And we want to take part of these startup nations. And they speak, you know, with entrepreneurs in Israel and they speak about, you know, don't, Israeli has Jewish, has a chutzpah, yes? And Israeli has like an extreme level of chutzpah. And part of the extreme level of chutzpah is that we don't 
street authority with any respect. We don't read. Okay, and, and then one of the Chinese asked one of the professor who told him that, in what lesson do you teach them this? Now, it's not part of the, we have one lesson that we teach you the chutzpah, it's a way of life. So the question, the Eastern ask Israelis, how can we incorporate the chutzpah? But in some way you can't, because if you incorporate chutzpah, you won't be Chinese anymore. So right. again, what can we do? Uh, you said, listen, Western need to learn more than Eastern because Eastern are more familiar with Western tradition and Western culture than Western with Eastern. Yes. And this is what you wrote in the book. Okay. But yeah. beside reading your great book, great book, what else can be done? Well, actually, this, you're touching on something that I'm doing right now. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and it just, ties in beautifully with your point about the Chinese coming to Israel to find out, you know, what, what, what's the secret ingredient? <laughs> uh, in U.S. corporations now, there's something called uh, the bamboo ceiling. You've heard of the glass ceiling, women <laughs> can't make it to the top. There's a bamboo ceiling, and the stereotype is Asians don't make it to the top of U.S. corporations, even though they have the highest SAT scores. Uh, and it turns out, well, it's not Asians, it's East Asians that don't make it to the top of corporations. South Asians are more likely to be head of corporations than whites. Uh, and it has everything to do with chutzpah, everything to do with chutzpah. I mean, the, uh, the Indian uh, manner, the, the behavior, the deep personal character uh, is assertive. Not necessarily aggressive, although some people I know find the distinction between assertive and aggressive is quite thin. There's a, there's a right. There's a um, there is my experience, my experience with Indian sellers is I had one student in my whole career, one undergraduate, come to me and basically quiz me about something to find out if he should believe it. Um, and he was an Indian who's now got a startup. Um, and uh, uh, there are more Indians with billion dollar startups in the US than there are any other foreign group. And there are not that many Indians in, in the US. I mean, it's still a tiny, tiny minority. Um, so, and by the way, I think number two, is Israeli. Uh, <laughs> now, of course, on a per capita basis, Israelis are way ahead of the Indians, but I mean- Thank you, thank you for mentioning it. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, but Indians, I mean, they're gonna, Indians are gonna, are gonna be a much bigger threat. And I don't mean in a violence and a much more, much more of a challenge than the Chinese because of this backwardness of the Chinese. And if you look at it by, I don't mean backwards in a civilization sense, I mean, just not putting it out there and, you know, uh, and critiquing, uh, standing up for their own view. Uh, but you see this in classrooms in undergraduate classrooms, professors are, are, find it very challenging to have a seminar with, 
uh, East Asian kids because they won't talk. And, uh, and, and, you know, in business, when you get to business school or law school, a lot of your grade is dependent on how assertive you are. Stand up and this is my opinion and here's why I think that and so on. And there is this great Malcolm Gladwell story that I think from the tipping point that, uh, that airlines or aircraft in, 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 East, in East Asia were just, you know, uh, crashing because the co-pilot or the vice pilot, I don't know how to say it, when he detected something, it, it was rude It was rude to say something to the primary pilot, and they need to retrain them in in the context of of, of pilot of all avionics. Yes, if you see anything suspicious, please tell. No matter what happens. Now again, I'm not calling you professionalist, but I'm calling you Richard, and this is rude. But I my perspective is that the best way to respect you is to actually read your work. Okay. So, so in my way, do, do you respect Richard Nisbet? Yes, I read his work. I read his books and I quoted his book. So in my opinion, yes, what we are doing right now is like is a most pure form of respect. And again, if the Chinese government would have hired you to give them advices regarding what you just said about critics, what can you do for the Chinese government? Well, the Chinese government, I thought you were gonna say uh, the following about the Chinese, and I don't know if it's still true, but for a while they were giving IQ tests to find the very smartest kids and give them the very best possible education. Idiotic to put your, to put your resources in that way. Uh, there, There's a study done in uh, California um, by, um, what, what the hell was his name? Can't recall offhand. Um, um, the uh, study of genius. He tried to track down every kid with a high IQ in the California school system at that time. In the like Louis Terman and, and his Terman, Termites. And these yeah, termites, the termites. Right, right. Those people, you know, they were good, solid citizens. They were fine doctors and lawyers. They weren't geniuses. There were no Nobel Prize winners among them. Although there were kids from California of that in that era who did end up winning the Nobel, Nobel Prize and being highly intellectually successful. And that tells you the limits of IQ test. I mean, by in the 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 uh, received view of intelligence. This is impossible. I mean, he got all these high, high IQs kids and they didn't do all that great. And there were lots of- And people. even Louis Thurman actually helped them in getting yeah, positions. Yeah, so so yeah. it even, you know, I'm going to uh, uh, make your argument even better. Even though Louis Thurman helped them, uh, they didn't came out, you know, extraordinary because there is something about extraordinary which is not encapsulated solely by IQ and this is why I think that you named the uh, the chapter of Amos's genius genius is not just a measure of how high your IQ is is something you know that just God pointed you and say okay you are something special and I, I, I totally agree with you on that I recommend to you the book I'm reading right now 
called Leonardo. It's just unbelievable. The mind is unbelievable. I mean, every every mind since then is in His biography? His biography? Biography, yes. Yeah, I, I read it. I read it. You no, know, it's the not a new book. Oh, no, 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 because I read like, there is a biography by, uh, just a second. Who is the author? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. By the, the way, maroon, has a maroon cover. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm telling people that Leonardo, the mathematical level of Leonardo da Vinci was approximately uh, fifth grade in, in today's standards. In today's standard, he couldn't What solve uh, Rubik's uh, 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 quadratic equation. I read it somewhere. So because, you know, what we know about math right now What we know, the abstract that we know about math, you know, the idea that x plus three can be any x and the concept of equations wasn't mm -hmm. so clear during the times of Leonardo. He was genius. He was pure genius. Yes, no question about this. But it, it is very, it, that even with the low math level, he became to achieve great things. Now, no, it, it, that is, it's remarkable. It's the things he did that, Today, you would use mathematics for, and he didn't know mathematics, and he was able to do it. I think Anyways, that well. some people, you know, God just touched them and say, listen, go take humanity to the next level. This yeah. is basically yeah. what happens. So, yeah. uh, Richard, first, thank you so much for your time, for your conversation, for your wisdom, for all the great books and works that you have done during your lifelong career. And since I have a chutzpah, I had a great idea. I, I think it was a great idea regarding a psychology research. And I would like to share it with you. Would you like to hear? Sure. Okay. Now, I called it the other box, and I even started to write the paper. And being a magician, being a magician, uh, it was in the online course, The Science of Everyday Thinking. And I think that what you said about, you know, the pantyhose, that if you give uh, uh, if you give person four Uh, four different pantyhose, but all pantyhose are identical, he will choose the pantyhose closest to him. And this is done in many, many things. And then I read it and said, wow, in magic, because I used to be a magician, in magic, we had the very same thing. If you give uh, people like four cards, he will never choose the closest to him. He will choose the second to closest to him. And then I start thinking, just a second, psychology or psychologists For, for, you know, for the last 100 years, just, you know, uh, investigated, you know, the intuitive thinking, the intuitive, yes, let's say that they have four things, okay, I'm taking the one closest to me. But when you are in a magic situations, so you go out of your box and say, no, I'm not going for the obvious thing, and you will go to the other box. And magicians for, their, for the last 100 years have studied the other box. I will give you another example. Let me, if you ask a person to name a color, he will name red. But if you go to the magic literature, the magic literature say that if you ask a person for a color, he will say blue because he think red. And then he said, no, it can't be red. I'm not, I'm going out of the box. And my idea is that even the other box can be learned can be determined and this is what magicians has done have done throughout the last 100 years what do you think 
No, oh, well, that, that's fascinating. <clears throat> but it can't be as, as deterministic as our pantyhose experiment, because I mean, it's only four times more likely to go for the for the for the one on the end than the one on the start. That, that's a strong effect, but it's not enough to to, to make you money in the yeah, as a, as but a yeah, even more because if a psychologist fails, so what happens? The standard deviation grows. But if a but if a magician fails, it will just blow the whole show. So when a right. magician in his autobiography say, listen, people usually do A, B, and C, he puts a lot on this A, B, and C, because psychologists right. don't care. What do we care if, if, it's, if the standard deviation like this or like this? But magicians do care. Right, right. So I'm, I'm surprised that there's anything like this that would be zero, one. I mean, definitely. No, no. But I so would say that people, that when you approach people with four different cards in a magic situation, they will almost never, never pick the card closest to them. Di Vernon, one of the biggest magicians in the 20th century, once, told, once said, no one picks the nine of diamonds ever. It's a big thing. You know, it's a lifelong career and say, no one never takes the nine of diamonds. So it's a, I think it's a very interesting. So Richard, thank you so much for your time. It was an extreme pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I had a lot of fun, as you can tell. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.